Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for some time together in your word. And I pray, Lord, as we take a look at childlike faith, that we can break down some of the misconceptions of that, what that phrase looks like and what that phrase means to us. And we would see, um, we would see our complete and total dependence on you, which is hard for a lot of us to really sink our teeth into. Um, but I pray that you'll help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we look at what's going on in the kingdom of heaven and this phrase of childlike faith, if we start in Matthew chapter 18, um, we're actually going to start in 19, and then we're going to go backwards, because I want us to see that it's not, I struggled a little bit because I wanted it to go really hardcore into 18, but then we get into 19, and we see this instance happening with Jesus and the kids that are coming around. And I don't want to diminish it, because what I'm about to do is tell you that what Jesus is talking about in the childlike faith is nothing what you think, but also don't want you to understand or diminish his passion and his compassion for kids, and a little reason of why that exists. And I think it's something that we need to carry on even today. I think we all know that we have a passion for children. We all know that it matters how kids are treated. We all cringe when kids are mistreated. Um, it's the single most devastating thing that I've seen in my years of working at the hospital as a chaplain and with the police department and even encountering some of the, the fire and rescue guys that when a, there's some instance or incident that involves a kid, that's what leaves a lasting, deep scar. It, it creates more chaos in the lives of men and women who are in those situations where uh, an infant passes in the hospital and I've watched nurses go off outside and I see them through the window and they're losing it outside because they've had to be in the room where a family has lost a child um, to do funerals where it's a, a two-week-old is devastating and that has a lasting impression on everyone who's encountered it experienced it been around it prayed for dug in tried to help it crushes you and so Jesus makes a very clear, bold statement in Matthew 19 about the children, about bringing children close to him. And there's some reasons why. So if we look at Matthew 19, 13, we have to put it in this perspective. Jesus has been teaching all of the disciples about all of this stuff. They've witnessed his transfiguration. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him poke at the religious leaders, which is some of my favorite parts of Scripture. When someone who shows up who thinks they have it all figured out, they think they've got all the rules figured out, and this is how exactly you approach God, and Jesus comes along and goes, Meh, I am him, and you're not doing it right. I appreciate that a lot. He teaches about divorce. He talks about forgiveness. And then in chapter 19, verse 13, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. He's reiterating what we're going to go back to in 18 in a second. And so here's this picture of Jesus doing all this important teaching. He's teaching about divorce. He's talking about temptation. He's talking about um, forgiveness and how important it is to forgive each other. And then the crowd is around listening to all this, and they start bringing the kids in. Will you bless the kids? Will you just lay your hands? Now, there's some stuff going on culturally where a, a rabbi or a teacher, if you would lay blessing and favor upon a 
child. Maybe that child will then grow in stature or grow in wealth or grow. There's some, some, there is some, some, some subservient things. There's some, some nasty stuff going on where there are some people around. The parents are like, if I could just get my kid to hang out with this person for a little bit, then maybe they'll be blessed. All of a sudden, they become a genius. All of a sudden, they become really great at business. All of a sudden, they get some special powers. So there's some nefarious potential motivation, but then there's also this pure motivation that can happen in parents too. Here's Jesus. He's proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, and I want my kid to see what it's like. But then the disciples rebuke this situation. Get those kids away. Get those kids away. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, even leading into this time period, children were often seen to be not alive until about the age of seven. That little kids were kind of seen as an annoyance. They weren't seen as a blessing, and until they achieved about seven-ish, then they were seen to be, okay, this is okay. Now, this comes from cultures like Sparta and cultures like Egypt, that if there was a child that had a physical abnormality or a mental incapacity, that by the age of six, if this manifests itself, then you were perfectly okay in culture to cast that child out into the woods or to throw them into the trash heap. That the age of seven was this magical age where all of a sudden, okay, this person's alive and we can then bring them around. And so there was a cultural kind of understanding throughout the Middle East that kids were just kind of around until a certain age and then they were brought into the fold. And we see this when Jesus talks about Gehenna, when he talks about hell. It's a place where children were sacrificed, where children were cast aside. We see the Christian church being a church that was rescuing kids out of those situations and bringing them into their families. And so the church has always stood for children. And Jesus puts these kinds of things in place in the, from the Word of God to say, let the children come. Do not look at children as a distraction. Do not look at children as potential people. They are people. Life is precious. So Jesus is calling, he's rebuking the disciples and saying, let the kids come. Let the kids come. Which is a beautiful picture. It's often, there's paintings, there's all kinds of drawings, there's all kinds of, if I can get it to connect, that show throughout the history of the church, whether it's in stained glass or in pictures that we buy, we hang on our walls, we see these pictures over and over and over again of Jesus having kids around him. And I think that's a accurate and a beautiful picture, but it's not what we're talking about when it's just the kingdom of heaven. He says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he's getting at a bigger concept. It's not just Jesus hanging out with kids and being playful, which is a great picture of Jesus, but that's not what he's getting at here. What he's getting at is the humility and the dependence of children. So if we back up to 18, and we read what Jesus would say in 18 verse 1. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now this is classic of what the disciples did. It's a bit annoying because they're hanging out with Jesus. They're hanging out with... Sorry, one more. They've seen all of this stuff. Peter has professed that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has said, that's the foundation, that's the rock on which my church will be built, not Peter himself. That is a terrible mistranslation. It's that it's the confession, the public confession. 
When Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, that's the rock in which my church will be built. Not on Peter himself, but on the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. The transfiguration happens. Three go up, hang out with Jesus in this moment where we see him in all of his glory. They're witnessing demons being cast out. People are being healed. And then we get to chapter 18. He says, at the time the disciples came to Jesus. This is a break in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the final section. It's the fourth section in the Gospel of Matthew. And for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, from 18 into the end, it's Jesus continuing to drive home the kingdom of heaven. And he tells them, well, the disciples ask, uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You can just imagine Peter, specifically, and maybe one or two others. So, Jesus, when you take over, and we kick out all those religious elites out of the temple in Jerusalem, who's going to be the greatest? I mean, I know it's you, Jesus. I know it's you, but we're tight, so I get to be right next to you making some decisions, don't I? And aren't we all, I mean, not for all like this, but haven't there been seasons in our lives when we're kind of like this? You know someone who's kind of special, kind of smart, kind of running the show, guiding the ship, whether it's a sport team where, like, you've got the stud athlete who's the one leading in scoring or maybe leading in big hits, and then you're, you're friends with them. Like, oh, well, I get to hang out with you. I get to kind of ride along with you. I get to be around you. That kind of stuff happens. And so the same thing's happening to the disciples. It's, their, it's, just, it's their nature. It's all of our human nature. Who's the greatest? Come on, Jesus, tell us. Who's the greatest? And he responds, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine the disciples going, whoa, what? I'm supposed to be like a child? And then we have all of the stuff that we talk about, childlike faith. But that has some connotations to it that make it sound like we're just supposed to be simpletons. We're just supposed to have the brain capacity and the intelligence and the drive and the curiosity of a five-year-old. But then we read the rest of the scriptures and we're told by by Peter, we should crave true spiritual milk. And we, Paul tells us that at some point we need to get off of spiritual milk, we start eating meat. But then here's Jesus telling us to have faith like a child, that we should humble ourselves and have faith like a child, and that's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And if you're like me, I take all of these inputs of data and go, what? So what am I supposed to do? Am I not supposed to question things in Scripture? Am I not supposed to read things and go, I don't understand that? I need to look at it. Or am I supposed to just have my Bible, read it at face value, and go, it says what it says, and I'm never going to think about it other than what it says? Well, I can't do that. That's not how I'm wired. I'm not just going to read it at face value. So does it make me feel like, ah, I don't think I can do this. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm humble enough. Well, if you take what Jesus says when he mentions children and he mentions childlike faith throughout from Matthew 18 into the end, if you put the word humble or dependent instead of being having the faith of a child, it makes more sense. 
That's a more accurate understanding of what's happening. So when he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become humble, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever is completely dependent upon Jesus, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not asking you to check your confidence at the door. Can you imagine if we took every professional in our lives and around us, every leader, every business owner, every technician, every teacher, every doctor, and said, well, I have faith of a child. I'm not really sure how to fix you. Is that the person you want? Desperately looking for an expert to give answers to what Bill needs to do so he gets his legs back. Do you want to walk into a doctor's office and have someone go, well, I have, I have the humble knowledge of a child, so we're going to play with some blocks, and we're going to see if it fixes Bill. That's a, that's a ridiculous interpretation of the Scripture. Instead, what it says is if Bill is looking for a doctor, wouldn't it be amazing if he went to a doctor's office and the doctor said, I'm an expert in my field, but I have never seen this. I need to humble myself, and I need to go talk to about three other people that are colleagues of mine to try to get to the bottom of this. Because I've not seen this before. I need to stretch myself and figure something out that's beyond me. That's what you want to hear. And that's what Jesus is asking us and commanding us to be as as children in the kingdom of heaven. Do you have a complete dependence upon the Lord? Like Joanna, who is so adorable, she cannot fry up her own bacon for breakfast. She can't make it happen. She can't fix her own bottle. She can't take care of herself. She doesn't know how to clean herself up. I don't think that Marissa and Trey, when it's bath time, just throw in the water and say, well, we'll see you in five minutes. Get clean. She is completely dependent upon her parents. That's what Jesus is driving home in this passage. Are you completely dependent upon Christ? Do you see how much you desperately need Him for guidance, for care, for affection, for salvation? That even in all the knowledge you gain and the wisdom that you impart on others with life experience, your knowledge of the Word, your love of Jesus, do you still have a humility in you that says, I don't have this all figured out. That even if you have a game plan, you got the bullet list, the task list, you know what you need to happen, you know what you need to do to help this person, you take a breath and you go, Lord, give me the words, help me understand what I'm supposed to do. I have a game plan, but if the game plan needs to be thrown out the window, please let me know. And you walk in to that situation. There's been a few times, and I, I can run by the seat of my pants. I can just do things. I can jump into situations and I can get through those situations. But it's always best when I have a plan in my head or I have it written out, but I also have the confidence that I might have to throw that whole thing out and roll with however God leads me. If I just hang out over here, just waiting for God to speak or waiting for God to give me the words, well, then I've had no plan. I've not thought about it. I've not. And that can be pretty disconcerting for people. But if I have all the plan, and I'm not listening to the people that I'm talking to, we're just going to work the plan, 
then I'm not allowing for any flexibility. And Jesus is calling these disciples. He's not telling them when he gives them marching orders to go spread the gospel, to go spread the gospel like children. Crawl around on your hands and knees and draw on the dirt and have some finger painting time. He doesn't tell them that. What he tells them is you're going to go two by two out into the world. You're going to go and you're going to plant churches. You're going to go and you're going to face opposition. You might be in fear for your life. But you do all of those things with a confidence in the Lord and a humility that you can't do it yourself. He then continues. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. A slight shift. The kingdom of heaven is like a person, the greatest in the kingdom, someone who's humble. But then he gives a warning. Whoever receives one such child, a believer, a Christian, a lover of Jesus, whoever receives that child receives me. That where we walk as believers in Christ, we are being received by friends and and people on the road and people we travel with. You should receive believers as you would receive Christ. And anybody that causes one of these little ones, not just an infant in Sunday school, but any believer, anyone who causes a believer to stumble, to sin, it'd be better for that person to be drowned in the sea. Now, does that mean that we're, as soon as that happens, someone causes you to stumble, all of a sudden a, a millstone magically appears and they're thrown into the bottom of Lake Hattie? No. There's, it's a warning. It's a warning of protection. It's a warning that maybe not in this age and maybe not in your lifetime, but someone that causes you to stumble, someone who's actively trying to pull people away from faith, is going to receive a judgment. That's a whole lot of terrifying, if I'm honest. But it shows a parental relationship that we have with our Father in heaven. That's why we use those terms all the time. Like how awesome, I mean, my kids don't run up to me anymore and want to be hugged by me or picked up by me. I mean, I think I can still pick them both up, but it would be really weird. <laughs> It'd be kind of funny if Eli ran up and just like wanted to jump in my arms, I had to hold him, and he's, he's 6'4". That'd be awesome. But I have pictures of him. I wouldn't show them because... I don't want to embarrass him. I have pictures of him when he's like eight or nine, maybe ten. He fell asleep on the couch in our basement. I had to carry him upstairs. And I pick him up, and I, I throw him on my shoulder. But even then, he was like five two. It's a picture of me holding him, and his feet are almost touching the ground. And I'm carrying him up the stairs to put him to bed because he fell asleep. Up until just a couple years ago, that's what I, Savannah is not the one that likes to get up in the morning very quickly. And so I would have to, it was like a game. Savannah, time to get ready for school. So I would just scoop her up, and I would carry her to the bathroom, and I would just stand her up, because then she couldn't pull the covers up over her head anymore. She had to stand there and get ready for school. It was like a running joke. It's like, Dad, Dad, and I throw her in the bathroom and shut the door, and okay, do your business. I could probably still pull that off with her, but she's also 14, and that would get awkward too. But don't you remember, whether you've had kids 
yourself or you've been around children, like, do, don't you remember that moment when you came home from work or you came out of the kitchen or you, and they, they, you were gone and all of a sudden you're back and they come running for you? And they got their arms up and they, you just grab them or you're fighting with them and wrestling on the floor and they're running at you. Ah, I love those moments. I love them. But in those moments, that was a total dependence that my kids had in my care for them. They didn't eat. They didn't live. They didn't have water. They had, didn't have protection unless I was the one providing it. It didn't exist for them. They were completely dependent on me. And it is kind of cool watching my kids get older and a little more independent. And sometimes I like it a lot when I don't have to haul the kids around because Eli can drive. And there's other times I'm like, well, gosh, there's just no kids around. And we're not empty nesting yet, but we see it coming real fast. And so we're trying to hold on to every moment we have with them. But then there's also this great joy that to send them out into the world as lovers of Christ, to go live a life of whatever God has shaped for them and see how he's going to use them, oh, I long for that too. So when we see in Jesus' description of the kingdom of heaven, he says it's about our humility. And even as a 46-year-old man, I have to see my dependence upon Jesus. I can't love my wife well. I can't lead my children well. I can't lead people in church well. I can't make decisions. Like there are days when it gets daunting being the decision guy. Hey, Mike, what do you about this? Hey, what? And I'm like, uh, uh, uh. And I get it right about 60% of the time, I think. And if I'm not like having the core, how does this affect the kingdom? How does this help people know Jesus? How is this loving to this person? If I don't have that center of what I'm trying to do or what I'm trying, how I'm trying to lead, then things go sideways so fast. If it becomes just about me, how fast does it go even crazier? So Jesus is compelling us. Do you have a childlike faith, but he's not telling you to be childish? You're to grow and mature and grow in confidence. He's not telling you to throw your wisdom out the window and go, I don't know, I just need to go talk to Papa and he'll give me some answers. He's given you all of the tools. He wants you to have a boldness and a confidence that's tempered with the humility that it's not about you. And we all fail at this. But do you consistently come back to the truth If it wasn't for Jesus, you couldn't handle the bad news. It breaks my heart seeing families in turmoil. It breaks my heart seeing tragedies happen across this world. And my brain consistently goes, how how do people who don't know the Lord get through these times? When everything is crashing all around and you have no anchor of hope in Jesus... How are you going to get through this? How are you going to pick yourself up the next day and get back to work or love your families? Like, how are you going to do this? Sheer will and determination is not enough. I haven't been on a plane in a couple of years. Well, that's not true. Last year we went on a plane. And every time I fly, especially at night, um, we land or take off, 
and I see all the lights lit up in a town. But you fly back into Denver, and it always hits, and I've shared this before, it always hits me. There's cars going up and down the road, and I'm watching them snake around the interstates, and I'm watching, and it hits me like, how many of these people that I'm watching move around? If every light represents a person, how many of these people don't know the light of Christ? And then it goes, well, God, they don't, where's their hope? Where's their joy? Where's their... They're just they're chasing materialism. They're chasing happiness in other areas, and it's all fleeting, and it's all just going to fall apart. And Jesus tells us the kingdom of heaven is for those who are humble enough to say, I need you. I can't do this alone. I can't save myself. I need you, Jesus. And then the warning, don't. Don't get in the way of people who are new in their faith, who are yearning for faith, who are questioning, who are, at, who are moving towards Jesus. And then also, don't cause believers to stumble. A millstone, I think a lot of times, my pictures of a millstone, <clears throat> growing up in, in Indiana, um, there were water wheel, there's lots of water and lots of rivers, and so mills would, be, would have paddles, and there would be a giant circular millstone in there. And so that's what I always thought. Uh, when this passage came across was, you know, there's some areas, French Lick, and there's areas around Indiana where you can go and see these giant, you know, mills. But then I went to Israel a few years ago, and we got to see what a house millstone looked like. And so this is a millstone. Um, they're laying around all over the place in certain areas and on and digs. And so you have this pedestal that sits here, and then this is the millstone. And you would have handles, maybe some poles, and you would spin this around. You would drop the grain in the middle, and it would land in here. And then you'd spin this millstone around, this pedestal, and all the flour would just pour it on the ground. And so their millstones were everywhere. So for Jesus to say this, that it's not giant, you know, like a water wheel, sawmill-looking millstone. They were all over the place. And so Jesus says, it'd be better to tie that around your neck and throw you into the sea. Now, I always had in my head, like, that's a ridiculous thing. Like, millstones are huge. You couldn't even move it with one person. Tied around my neck, like, you can't even move it to the water to drown me. Millstones were all over the place. And I think Dr. Bookman, that's his leg there, um, it was actually on the ground, and it's an archaeological dig that's not really highly guarded or monitored. So he just picked it up and put it on there. And like, are, are we, can we do this? Are we, are we going to an Israeli jail soon? Um, but it gives an image that it's better for us to die a terrible death than to cause people to stumble. So that causes some reflection in us. What am I doing in my life? Or what, am I, what's, what are people seeing in me that could cause people to stumble? But then the flip side of that is, what are you doing in your life and your expressions of confidence in Christ that will build people up in faith? That your humility is going to build people up in their love and affection of Jesus. So to close, maybe, The only way to walk with Jesus is humbly. For the smartest person in the room, who's the most theologically sound, who can explain all the nuances of every passage of Scripture that people would call into question, that person must walk with a humble faith or they are not going to enter the kingdom of God. 
it starts with our humility. It starts with the, the, the true understanding that I can't do this. I can't, I can't push out all of the thoughts that are in my head that are not redeeming. I can't fight against my nature to do things that are an affront to God unless I have Him close to me. That I have to humbly understand that I need to spend time with Jesus. I need to spend time in His Word. I need to spend time in quiet with Him. I need to spend time in community that people are going to push me and shape me and help me. We need relationships. And our primary relationship should be with Jesus. Do you spend time with Him? This last week I spent two nights in the woods. Well, I didn't spend two nights in the woods. I had a camper. But trying to chase the majestic elk with a pointy stick. And I have not been very successful in that endeavor. As I'm told often by a few men in this congregation that 30 caliber arrows are more effective. And, but even in the frustration of not being a very good hunter, I spent 12 hours walking around the woods in the snowies, taking my time, easing through, no AirPod in, listening to a podcast, no watching a clip, no distracted by the news, no, for two days I was completely unplugged from all of the stuff that happens. And I come off the mountain and my phone blows up and it's, did you see this? Did you watch that? Oh my gosh. I'm like, I think I should just go back to the mountain. (laughs) I think I should just go back up there. And in those moments, like I feel so humbled on the side of a mountain, something I had no part in creating, had no part in doing. I'm walking around, enjoying all that God has done, enjoying good food, enjoying some rest, enjoying crisp mountain air to sleep in. And it just humbles you. That I'm not in control of any of this. I'm just enjoying it. Do you walk with Jesus in that kind of fashion? I'm not trying to control him. I'm not trying to tell him what to say. I'm not trying to make it my own. I'm along for the ride, and I love that relationship with him. He guides me. Sometimes he pulls himself back and says, Mike, you need to figure this one out. I'll give you some wisdom. And I'm like, I could could use some help here. And other times he tells me I'm an idiot. It's usually through a friend that says, that was a dumb idea. Yeah, you're probably right. And he shapes me and he molds me. But it begins with a humble walk with him. That's the only way to walk with him. Is your walk a humble walk with him? Think about this that this week. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for this time we've had together. I pray, Lord, as we continue to talk about the kingdom of heaven, that we could really hone in on this core understanding of our humility and our dependence upon you. You train us, you help us to grow, you send us out on mission, but at the core of our relationship with you is our need for your guidance, for your love, for your constant reminder that you have saved us, that we are part of the family, 
and that you really like to spend time with us. Help us, Lord, to walk in that kind of humility and let that turn into a great, bold confidence in your love for us so that when we talk about you to people around us, when we are in some dark holes, we would know that even in those moments we're loved. We're loved by the Creator. We're loved by the one who died for us. And there's no other way I want to spend my life except growing closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.